If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. making extraordinarily inappropriate jokes while swearing like a sailor? Then the Getting Off podcast is for you. Hosted by us. Two real live criminal defense attorneys. Getting Off explains the legal reasons behind outcomes in famous trials and tackles tough topics in the world of crime and criminal justice. We use first-hand sources like trial transcripts, police reports, crime scene photographs, and appeals briefs to give you the information that the public rarely hears about when it comes to the criminal justice system. Our podcast isn't about carefully crafted musical interludes or obsessively edited narratives. Instead, it is a no-holds-barred, unedited, raw legal presentation by two lawyers that have spent over a decade each in the trenches. Previously covered cases include Casey Anthony, Michael Peterson, Jody Arias, and more. Subscribe to the Getting Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Do that to get off now. folks welcome back to la not so confidential this is dr scott hi i'm dr shiloh so this is part two of our crossover episode with the wonderful hosts of getting off um so here we i know we've told you this a lot of times to hey go back and watch this documentary or whatever before you listen to this episode this is part two of a very long episode you have to go over to the wonderful folks at getting off and it's what episode is it shiloh Two, two, three. Two, oh my God! They're they totally running us into the dirt. They have <laughs> so many episodes. But this is the episode that we did the live show of um, same topic at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago. It was a huge hit. Absolutely, it was great. We got fantastic feedback. The only thing was that the recording uh, something, yeah, something, is up something with that. auditory. So is we recreated it and go over to the Getting Off podcast and listen to Mary Kay Letourneau part one. And then come back to this episode for part two. Okay, enjoy. 
We'll see you next time. Bye. I think that's a good question. And so Shiloh, why don't you, I think that's sort of the the legal aspect of it. There's an interesting sort of son of Sam uh, ability to make money off the book thing, but we can kind of skip that moral of that story. There are fascinating constitutional issues surrounding that, but that's kind of a separate story. Well, let's just dive into sort of talking about female sex offenders in general, because the media would have one think that these teacher student Female sex offenders are the most um, prolific. Well, they probably are the most prolific because we do that in the media, but um, that it's the most common type, and it really isn't. Uh, It's interesting that... So everything I'm going to talk about, research-related, treatment-related, comes with the caveat that there are not a lot of female sex offenders that go through the criminal justice system. Therefore... The numbers are actually pretty low when we start doing studies on them. So this is probably just the tip of the iceberg of what we know. Um, I think that is shifting. I know that I saw a shift when I left doing sex offender work full-time about two years ago. The clinic that I worked for, we actually had enough female sex offenders to have an entire group, weekly group of offenders, and that was the first time in about 11 years that we'd had a full female sex offender group. So it was changing, but I think it does go back to the the criminal the double standard in the criminal justice system stems through the entirety of it. So if we look at the very front end of just a, a male victim reporting a female perpetrator, we know that sex offenses go underreported anyway because of the shame and the stigma. So put on top of that that a boy is actually going to accuse a woman, and then you have even lower rates. And then that boy and his family walk into the police department if they decide to report it. And how is that police report written? Is it going to have some of the bias that we've talked about in it already? Yeah, probably. And then is a DA going to pick that up and file that charge? Maybe, but maybe not if they don't think it's a winnable case. And then all the way through, uh, go ahead. To go back to their original police contact, if you flip the genders in that, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, Absolutely. Like, police are going to ask more questions than, oh, that person's 18? Cool, carry on. Yes, yes. Right. For example, why is a student in a car with their teacher at night? Like what, what? I mean, none of that makes any sense. What's the leg- what's what's the legitimate explanation for that? I can't really think of one. And but, Doctor Shallow, one thing that you just said, you said the how would it be viewed by law enforcement and prosecutors in terms of oh, can we win this case? Mm-hmm. Look at when she reoffended after she was released from from jail. She was caught in a car in a compromising position with him, and she wound up pregnant a second time. That is the biggest slam dunk. It's very winnable, ever. yes. It, it's an unlosable case. Right, and, right. And yet it's not charged. Yeah, oh, was- no doubt. Her case is very special in lots of different ways. But I think if we're just talking about female sex offenders in general, this is sort of how it goes. And there, there's research about these different stages in the criminal justice system all the way up into... Um, looking at sentences that are handed out, which we saw 
you know, what a good deal that she got in in the first place. Um, But in general, yes, women commit less crime than men. So that's an overarching reason why there's less female sex offenders. But then you loop in that they're not getting brought to light or prosecuted at the same rates as male offenders. Um, And then that sort of adds to the scarcity of a population that we're able to study. Um, So I I just want to put out some stats there. So nationwide, there's about 140,000 men incarcerated for sex crimes, and there's only about 1,500 women incarcerated here in the United States. Um, Less than 10% of reported sex offenses are committed by women, and they're responsible for 1% of all rapes that occur in the nation. Um, However, 20% of all sex offenses against children are committed by women. So they are not um, violently sexually assaulting other adults when they offend. Predominantly, it's, it's going to be against children. And what is actually the most common type? I'm going to go through some typologies, but yeah. it's women who are in a caretaking position, either a mother or a babysitter, um, daycare provider, something like that. So to go through the typologies, I, I will save the, the t- what I call teacher-student category later. They actually, it is officially named teacher-lover, which, bleh. Yeah, Again, nice. come on. Yeah. Um, but so, so there's the predisposed molester, and this typology of female sex offenders, they have a really high history of being abused themselves, and they're, what I talked about earlier, they're offending against prepubescent children in their care, and it is all over the board. There's fondling, there's um, different types of contact offenses that are being done by these predisposed molesters. Um, male coerced offenders, which I'm sure you've probably have some experience defending or having um, in the courtroom would be women who are sexually abusing younger people because a man is coercing and or forcing them into it. So they're co-defendants um, in that case. And, and a lot of times these women are very dependent, very likely to suffer from mood disorders and are not necessarily all willing to participate in these offenses. Can you talk a little bit about then just to build on what I was talking about earlier, how these, sometimes these are crimes of opportunity rather than necessarily a a pedophilic disposition, right? Right. So, um, well, women have, are diagnosed with much lower rates of pedophilia than men anyway. Um, but the majority of these crime of these typologies that I'm talking about are, um, situational. I wouldn't say something like the, the male coerced offenders. It's not necessarily opportunistic where it's impulsive, right? But again, they're sort of taking the lead of this male co-defendant who is planning this out. And maybe, you know, if it involves a child that's uh, prepubescent involving some sort of pedophilia on his part. Um, did you guys want to speak to any of that? Have you had majority of, of male coerced offenders if you've dealt with females? So I have had some teacher-student female offenders I would definitely say the vast majority of my female offenders have been in the category you're talking about. Okay. Okay. I thought so. So, like, usually there's pretty heavy DV between the male offender and the female offender. Right. Yeah. And, you know, 
Right. That, and an abusive controlling dynamic. And Dr. Shalom, when you were talking about it's common for female vendors to have mood disorders, you meant particularly in that context, correct? Correct. In that in that uh, category or typology. Right. And that, that makes sense to me. And I think that it, we haven't represented a lot of folks um, uh, that fit that description or had cases that involve that dynamic, but there have been a few. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, um, same. I mean, that's that's what I saw a lot of when I was working with offenders as well. Um, and then the, there's another category called the psychologically disturbed. So this is where we might actually see some female offenders that could meet the criteria for psychopathy. Usually they have suffered from severe traumatic abuse themselves. Um, there might even be uh, some psychosis in with that. But usually they have... Uh, really high rates of their own criminal history, varied, a varied criminal history, and substance abuse disorders. So that's that's pretty rare, but we do see that from time to time. And then the actually the most rare is actually the teacher-student situation. So we th- any one of us, I'm sure, wherever we live, see an article just about every week of the latest teacher that got arrested for this. Um, but that's the only type that makes the news. Um, and, and you can imagine how high profile it is. There's uh, parents that are completely outraged and that bring it to the media's attention and then they sort of run with it. Um, but these women, there really seems to be this thread and I think is true from observations of interviews with Mary Kay, is there's this stunted arrested development nature to them where they are so adolescent in their presentation and what they're doing is they're 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 seeking out these other adolescent not other adolescents these adolescents these children to meet their emotional needs well they they fundamentally see themselves as much younger than they are yes exactly their yes. self-perception and that is certainly mirrored in many of the interviews and pictures that you see of Mary Kay, especially when she's with Villy at these different functions, she's got this very coquettish, you know, teenagerish <laughs> look about herself mm-hmm. with, with, you know, very, very sort of um, flamboyant and ex- ex- expressionistic poses. And even like, and I want to be very careful how I tread here because, I, you know, this is not about me criticizing um, a woman's choice to dress how she wants. But, you know, the, the lack of insight, if you're trying to prevent, present as a someone who's not perpetrated a sex crime against another individual, then maybe you don't want to wear spaghetti straps with one of them falling off your shoulder. You while dial you're being it back interviewed. a little bit. Exactly, you dial <laughs> yeah. it back. Yeah, and Scott, I think you're being really politically correct and really sensitive to that like as a woman in Shiloh I'm sure you can jump in on this like I look at that and the interviews they do together when he's an adult she is in very short skirts sometimes fetishistic clothing like thigh highs and high heels absolutely yeah uh, heavy makeup like campy exaggerated makeup in some capacities bleached blonde hair her demeanor towards him every time she's kind of directing him, she puts a physical hand on him. She's touching his shoulder. She's touching his hair. She's, she's leaning into yeah, him. Yeah, she's. It's a very weird combination of the inappropriate lack of insight expressed as inappropriate clothing, and yet she's being very defensively maternal and directive. 
on his statements, almost sort of, you know, like, and I've seen that when I've done evaluations of abused children, where the parent is, you know, sitting across the room glaring at the child. It's a, it's, it's a form of control, just that inward, you know, turning towards him when he's going to answer something and a little tilt of the head, like, I'm watching. Yeah. I'm watching what's going to come out of your mouth right now. Right. So be careful what you say. She does a thing. I think it was the Bar- Barbara Walters interview where she leans forward, cocks, then rotates her shoulders, and then further even rotates her head, almost as if she's curving around him so that he has to look at her first before he can respond to Barbara Walters. Right. It's very odd, very disturbing. So it's interesting how these, in the teacher-student typology, that there's, like we said, this adolescent presentation. They're kind of stuck in this area. But then on the flip side, there's there's also this... um, this role of I'm sexually teaching or mentoring yeah. this young man, and it, you know it's out of good faith, and that I, I'm not um, a, a sexual predator. I'm, I'm helping him along in life. So that's it's a very unique cognitive distortion, um, not unique to sex offenders. Male sex offenders, we get this as well, um, especially some that are are more pedophilic oriented um they they if if they can live in that headspace of like i'm i'm helping this person discover their sexuality then it gives them a an excuse to be to participate in this behavior so i have a question about that yeah is so that sort of thinking like is that a self story right like is that because i've seen that too where like male offenders of mine will impute this sort of knowledge base and maturity on their child victims that just simply objectively does not exist, right? Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Like, like that any rational person would look at this and say, no, 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 like you engage in grooming behavior, you hold positions of power, like you've given this kid things that they want, you control them. You know, these are things that like as a lawyer I can see, but when they talk about it, they impute this sort of independence on these kids to oh. say like oh we really love each other in this relationship yeah there's this very specific cognitive distortion that we see with all types of sex offenders that we call dangerous world okay. and it is it's sort of where they they start to look at the world as like us against them and insulate that big bad world out there I don't want it to harm you I don't want it to um influence you negatively i'm going to sort of guide you through life and into how adulthood should be and it's you and me and i I could see this falling it's you and me until you age out of my preferred age range and then (laughs) then fly little bird it's time for you to leave it's time for you to go because because we you know shiloh and i met uh doing our psych internships uh 10 years ago next month we we have our, our anniversary this is crazy um but in our facilitating groups of sex offenders, you know, one of the things that was, was very clear in our training is these different, I, wouldn't, I don't even want to say, it doesn't necessarily uh, work as a typology, but like that we would have like a good 30% of the individuals that were in our groups that were aware of their pedophilia. They took responsibility for their crimes. They realized that they were otherwise 
oriented and that it was going to be necessary for them to adjust their behaviors in order to survive in the world. You know, and that that's maybe even less than 30%. But then there was a good 45, 50% and I'm I'm being, you know, pretty uh pretty uh lazy with my stats here, but this the, maybe it seems bigger because this was the most disturbing were the people that justified it. And that they're like these, like you were saying, what was it the term you used? Danger- dangerous world. Okay, so dangerous world. A lot of the ones that would, you know, be within this paradigm would also say, you know, this was accepted at other times in history. Yeah. This was, you know, if it other was other cultures. Other cultures, uh, you know, in, in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. And, you know, and no amount of. I mean, you could like I would get drawn into. Well, yeah, in Greek and Roman society, they were also second class citizens. If they were, you know, if you were tired of your your cabin boy or your, right. uh, they're practically slaves. They're slaves. <laughs> you can kill them. You have the right to get rid of. So it was this a real cognitive distortion. It's cherry picking historical events and and cultural aspects to justify your shitty behavior. Right. Right. I think it's also interesting. Um, there's a criminologist out of University of Birmingham. His name is Anthony Beach. And he really hones in on the entitlement of these teacher-student female offenders. Um, he says that they basically think they can have sex with anyone they want. And it's about the manipulation and the power imbalance. So something about engaging in this relationship gives them more power in the sense that you know they are the more mature the more um, sexually mature and then they can control a little bit more their victim um, he really thinks that there's a, a very strong narcissism particularly with this typology that I can do what I want because I'm the most important person in the room so that's interesting too because if you frame it that way it's it's it's, it's when we look at male sex offenders that go into careers that provide them with an opportunity to groom victims such as being, you know, choir directors or coaches or teachers or, you know, volunteering for youth organizations. Mm -hmm. So here we have in, as an educator for females is this opportunity to go into a position of power. You know, what, what teacher really goes into teaching in order to cement a position of power, you go in because you want to educate, you want to give back, care and you care. You know, sure. But this is a real. It seems like that there is probably no middle ground between these two. And even right. if it doesn't exert, I mean, I think we've probably all had experience with teachers or professors in our educational histories that they were in it for being able to be in a position of power, whether it right. was had anything to do with sex or not. And I, I think we all, when we've talked about this before, agree that we don't think Mary Kay falls into a, a pedophilic disordered person or typology. Um, you know, even though 12 or 13, he's right, about, right on the cusp of pubescence, and she knew him prepubescently as well. Um, you know, pu- puberty is different for everyone. We we put numbers on this, but I, I don't think she has that predilection at all. Well, because if she did, he would have aged out 
of oh, that true, preference, true. right? I mean, yeah. that, that's one. I mean, it doesn't mean that it's completely exclusive to that right. to that age range. But you know, when I look at it characterologically, the idea, and I, I keep going back to this idea of the the aspects of a histrionic personality disorder, and that's really marked by a tendency of individuals to re, to look at relationships as more intimate than they actually are. Because, and look, this is a perfect example of that. She gets to fantasize about this perfect sort of clean, holy, virginal relationship with this this boy rather than deal with the fact that she's got a husband and four, four kids, kids. Right. You know, and all the responsibilities that come along with that. And on top of it, you know, there's been a lot of indications that she actually did she actually did have manic and hypomanic episodes where she would not sleep for days at a time and, you know, be the super mom. You yeah. know, so everybody would instead of looking at is like Oh, that's kind of crazy behavior. Everyone's looking at it as like, oh, wow, she's the best mom in the world. She does this all stuff for her kids. She's the Pinterest mom. Yeah, she's the Pinterest mom. <laughs> Nailed it. Oh, God. Um, I, I also think it's important to just talk about in human sexuality and attractiveness that for heterosexual men, it is absolutely natural and normal for them to be attracted to adolescent females. And there's a whole... It's a, it's a biological it's imperative. It's biological. It's, um, you know, takes us back to our caveman days, and that is still a very strong trait. But the reverse is not true. Heterosexual women typically are not attracted to adolescent boys. Because there is no biological imperative, because those adol- those pre-adolescent and adolescent boys are not at the peak of their, their, uh, their fertility. Right. Also, 14-year-old boys are gross. Well, yeah. Like <laughs> two adults, just objectively, like yes. Well, yeah, their their poor bodies. It's are not getting, hot. You know, bombarded by you know <laughs> hormones, and you know they're trying to figure out life. So it's it's not a pleasant if, time. If we're going back to caveman days, like how are you going to provide shelter and protection and food for me right. with that little like, scrawny like your, body <laughs> skills? Like I don't care. Right. 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 Your, your gawky acne and your lack of coordination. Your braces. Yeah, you look terrible. <laughs> yeah, no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Not but mad Fortnite skills. Mad <laughs> Fortnite skills. Jesus. <laughs> so, question for you guys, and I don't like I don't expect to hold you to this on a clinical level, but so they obviously get married. We know that Velia's filed for divorce at least twice. There's been some reconciliation. I, as a lay person, view that as him, like, kind of trying to get out of this relationship and not necessarily really being able to. Is there a way that this, like, if you start out victimizing somebody and committing child sexual assault, can that morph into a healthy adult relationship? Or is it likely that it'll morph into an adult healthy relationship? Like, the love story aspect of this that Larry King and everybody else told, how fair or unfair is that? I, I wouldn't leave room for possibility that, you know, if you have enough insight and you have enough desire to, you know, face your demons and do and the enough work therapy if, and enough therapy. Yeah. If, if you have if you have the take advantage of the tools that are available to you, then then there's a possibility. Is it likely? No. You know, I, sure. the, I, I look at this, you know, like you were you started out re- talking about Villy. I look at it as a. And I, I don't, I, I'm not saying this in a disrespectful way at all, but the idea that he imprinted on her like a duck, like a little duckling, yeah. you know. So I would, I feel for the guy in 
because Jessa, I think he's doing exactly what you're saying. I think he is trying to break away. But if his temp, his template for relationship since he's 13 years old has been with a histrionic, characterologically disordered individual who has manipulated and groomed him, I mean, how, how can you break away from that? I yeah, that's it's got to be a very difficult thing. I, I, you know, is it a possibility that this could be healthy? I don't. I don't think at this point they could morph that into anything healthy without a, a really intense break. Like, let's just get them away right. from each other. Well, in all the the more recent interviews, doesn't he just look extremely tired of her shit? Yes. Well, he just looks exhausted he overall. He does. Just exhausted and worn down. Can you imagine day in and day out? <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it's tough, you know, and they've had with two daughters and there's been a recent, I think, a March 2019, he filed again. And this seems like, you know, maybe this is going to be the one. But with two daughters that are now going into adulthood, this is probably his best chance. He doesn't have them necessarily linking him to her where they have to all be in the same home. You know, I, I wanted to back up one second, too, and just make sure that I mean, so. You know, we we take advantage of the opportunity to talk about cases like this and individuals such as Mary Kay because she is in the public eye, because she was given a, an enormous battery of psychological exams. Those things, they're not necessarily freely available on the web, but they were part of public record in her case. So it's not like, it's not like we're just pulling stuff out of our rear. You know, we're actually, you know, we are trained and licensed to, we're, to interpret human behavior. And tying that back to what you were saying earlier, the individual who is on this um, axis to spectrum, which is where we put the personality disorders in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, you know, those are really tough nuts to crack. I mean, they're very, very hard. Personality disorders are, are static and they are hardwired into the individual. And while some of the mood symptoms can be addressed with medications, the ability to, you know, it takes incredible mindfulness for someone to own up to their stuff. And someone with just pure histrionic would probably be able to move forward. Borderline individuals have had great success with some cutting edge techniques of treatment that have been developed in the last decade or so. But you know, her underlying narcissism is, I mean, anybody that works with narcissists in, in private practice, I mean, it's the total Tony Soprano example, <laughs> if you ever watch The Sopranos. You know, he fits all those character, character characteristics of being a narcissist. And, you know, Dr. Melvy just finally gave up. She realized, like, this is a, an absolutely fruitless endeavor. And that's that's really where I would place her, unless she's willing to, you know, walk away and go get better. But look at what she's done. She's intimately tied herself to this man through children and life and their their public personas and their media personas. There's no way he's going to get away. So Scott, I have two follow-ups to that. One is for our listeners more than yours, which is you've used some terms that I'm hoping you can briefly explain, which is the difference between histrionic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, and narcissistic personality disorder. But then the second question that I have for you about well let's start there well, but, and, yeah and actually can I can I ask a question that would maybe even lead into that can you guys define what a personality disorder is what, when you use that phrase what do we mean when we when, when mental health professionals 
use it. And then what are the subtypes that you're talking about there? Hey everybody, it's Dr. Scott. I have to jump in because in listening to the recording, I went off the rails and realized I never really answered Jess's question about personality disorders. So in order to be congruent and accurate, I wanted to record this little bit and stick it in. I hope I won't be doing this too much uh, throughout our series. Anyway, here we are. I wanted to explain about personality disorders. So from a clinical standpoint, we look at personality disorders as a class of mental disorders that are presented as enduring and chronic maladaptive patterns of behavior, patterns of thinking, patterns of inner experience, and they're exhibited across in all areas of life. So we divide these into three categories. We look at them as cluster A, which are odd characteristics. We look at them as cluster C, which are anxious characteristics. And then we also look at cluster B, which are called very dramatic. And there's four basics. And you can have flavors of some of these, or you can have combinations of some of these uh, symptoms. So within cluster B, there's antisocial, there's borderline, there's histrionic, and there's narcissistic. I'm going to boil it down just to the basics. And this is straight out of the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual. So antisocial personality disorder is a pervasive disregard for the law and the rights of others. We're seeing actually that there's a genetic component as well as some heavy environmental factors informing this, but really it's someone whose brain structure just doesn't fire in the same way that normies do, and they really don't respect the rights of others. They feel like, hey, you know what, I... The rules don't apply to me. Now, what's interesting is the rules don't apply to somebody with narcissistic personality disorder either. And narcissistic personality disorder is represented by a pervasive pattern of grandiosity, a need for admiration, and a lack of empathy. Well, when you're focused on yourself, you don't really think about the feelings of others. But grandiosity is really sort of this expanded and elevated view of oneself where you think, hey, my ideas are the best. Everything that comes out of me is just the best idea ever. And why shouldn't the world have to uh, adapt to the way I think and the way I move through the world? So that leads the last two, borderline personality disorder. And these individuals really, really experience extreme black and white thinking, chronic feelings of emptiness, instability in relationships, self-image, identity, and behavioral disturbances, sometimes leading to self-harm and a lot of impulsivity. And that impulsivity can also be sexually acting out, which can be dangerous to self or others as well. So borderline individuals are really fascinating because they can be absolutely charming just as as antisocial and narcissistic individuals can as well. So that leaves us with histrionic personality disorder, which is pervasive attention-seeking behaviors, including inappropriately seductive behavior and shallow or exaggerated emotions. So there's a lot of drama. There's not a lot of substance. And one of the things that really is sort of similar in this cluster B set of uh, personality disorders is the idea that given any particular situation, these individuals are really able to justify their decision-making abilities. So they kind of create their reality as they move along through life. So that's it. Just wanted to give you like a little lesson and um, hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. All right. We'll see you on the flip side. Bye. I mean, one of the hallmarks is, which I find interesting because 
um, Mary Kay really likes to talk about what a great mother she is to all of her <laughs> children. And yet, if you look in any interview, you know, she talks about the great relationship she has with her four biological children from her first marriage. And yet, they're not volunteering for interviews. They're not being interviewed on camera. So once again, it's this idea that if she can't have that as a reality, then she will create it in her, in her own mind. Well, there's actually a pretty interesting interview in which she's asked if one of your children, because she has a son that's just a year really. Do you have that quote? Um, I, I, I can paraphrase it where she's basically asked like, what would you do if yes, your child, that's what I'm, yeah, read that, that, tell that one. Cause it, that one's my uh, jaw dropping to me. Yeah. Like, what would you do if your child were sexually assaulted by a teacher? Essentially? I mean, that's the question is how would you react to this? And her response is I wouldn't be reactive. I would listen to my child. I would listen to the other side of the story. I wouldn't do anything unless I subjectively felt, and I'm paraphrasing here, but I felt that there were perhaps abusive tendencies, then I would try and address those outside of the criminal justice system. Can you can you hear my eyes rolling across the country <laughs> right now? I mean, I... But she basically says, I won't adequately protect my own child if something similar happens to them. And well, that she's going to be a great lit- litmus test for judging absolutely, what yeah. an appropriateness is. Sexual abuse or not. Sure. Right, because she has so much insight into the abuse that she herself has perpetrated. Totally. Right. right. Scott, I want to ask you a question about, we, we've talked, or you guys have talked about insight. The insight that the, the people that you have treated, the insight that, well, I want to ask specifically about Mary Kay Letourneau's insight, which appears to me to be none, almost <laughs> non-existent. What is the relationship between people who have been diagnosed with personality disorders and the ability to have insight into their own behaviors? You know, is or is there one? I, I'm not really sure what the stats are on that. That's an excellent question. What I'll say anecdotally from my experience is that I have worked, you know, I have worked, especially in, in prison, I worked extensively with um, male inmates who were diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And male oh, borderlines, and a- that can look very different from female borderlines. But when you're using a protocol that specifically works on developing mindfulness and insight and distress tolerance, you can see as a per as an individual's ability to learn to um, sit in discomfort and regulate their own internal emotional distress. As that all increases, there all of the other symptomology decreases, and the in, the insight increases. They can take responsibility for their actions. So I can see it in borderlines. I think histrionics would probably benefit in the case of Mary Kay. I don't know if I could make like a I could prognosticate because everybody keeps reinforcing her behaviors. Right. Every time there's a new news story, every time there's a, you know, oh, is Billy going to break up with her now? That reinforces her either as a hero or a victim. You know, and it doesn't matter which role she plays as long as she gets that, that spotlight of attention on her. So is there an ability to develop insight? I have to think that there's a little bit, and what I base that on is that she has enough insight to know when she has to cover for herself, going back to when she lied about Villy's age versus when she said, I didn't know this was against the law, I didn't know it was wrong. So 
none of that adds up. And in order for that to not add up, she has to have some insight into the nature of her actions. Does that make sense? It, it does. And yes. let me just reframe this for people that are listening that might have diagnoses of some type of personality disorder. You're not saying that these things can't be treated. It's just that somebody needs to be willing to embrace the treatment and to explore insight to do that. Absolutely. I mean, I'll, and I'll say that like some of them are most, and I, and I, I mean this with no disparagement. I mean it with like actually great admiration. Some of our greatest artists and some of our greatest performers and probably some of our greatest politicians are people who have access to issues. You know, I, in dealing with, um, I recently dealt with a a very, very disordered individual who has a delusional disorder on top of a personality disorder, which is a really, that's a really tough nut to crack. But she was given a diagnosis of uh, borderline personality disorder. But what she heard was, I love too much. So she gets to frame herself as a martyr, as someone who has this preternatural ability to express love and give love and receive love, and yet she lives in an uncompromising and harsh world that doesn't appreciate who she is. So it's the world's fault. Not it's hers. the world's fault. So you know, trying to get that into treatment is going to be really hard. But believe me, I've seen. You know, I've seen amazing things. It's all about having access to treatment and having motivation to engage in it. And I, I, well, and there, I, I oh, think as we're talking about insight, just to sort of sum all of this up, I think we can all agree that if when asked, if Mary Kay Letourneau said, you know what, what I did was wrong, oh, yeah. I hope you know no one follows in my footsteps and does this. We had two beautiful children. We ended up married, but yes, I what I did was wrong and it was bad. And um, I I accept that I was a part of victimizing my yeah. husband, and we've moved on. I think we could all take that and realize. Yeah, if she had okay, said, yeah. If she had said, "I'm going to have to live with this sure. for the rest of my life. I'm going to have to realize. I'm going to have to live with the impact I had on this man that I love." Right. Yep. Blah blah blah. I mean, I, I we even said this at the conference. I always, you know, being a big old Broadway queen such as I am, uh, I like to take a line from uh, Wicked, uh, which is a long-running Broadway musical. But one of the greatest lines that has stuck with me for years is the most celebrated are the rehabilitated. Oh, yeah. And all she would have had to have done is admit, like, after it was all done, she's, she's, right. she's out of prison. All she'd have to say is, yeah, I made some really bad decisions. And, but look at the great things that have come right. of it. You know, and, and we're working every day to be better instead of what she does is she's constantly a victim. Acceptance of responsibility goes a long way. In the public eye. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So I've got, I've got two reactions to that. My first reaction to that is, sure, I agree with everything that both of you guys just said, except that is a different human being. That is, that is that, <laughs> yes. That, that, totally. yes. Oh, absolutely. Is, right? I mean, that, that's Mary Kay Letourneau is not a person who could say that. But then by as soon as I say that, I think of the different ways that she sometimes presents in these interviews. And she almost seems to be playing a role and tell me if I'm wrong I may be totally off base on this but what I see is somebody who's trying to portray themselves in a way that they think is consistent with what what the interviewer or their audience 
wants. Like she's trying to get something out of these interviews. She's trying to, you know, pitch, pitch herself in a certain way. And so she's dressing this way because she wants to be depicted that way. And so then a person, if, if, if that's accurate, then a person who could dress one way and play this role on one occasion and a different role on, on another occasion, perhaps that person could ape the, the rehabilitation language but not mean it. Well, yeah, you bring up a very good point, Nick. But the, the, the mix in that or the crux in that is that how long can you hold it for? You know, one of the things that I'll do when I'm called to testify, like a part of what I do in, in my day job is is try and get people who are severely mentally ill to the point where they're either a danger to themselves or a danger to others or gravely disabled. I, you know, I work with a team of individuals, of a multidisciplinary team, where our goal is to um, take these people to the mental health court and engage them in a public conservatorship where basically it's it's sort of what used to be state hospital long-term inpatient psychiatric holds, except that those don't really exist anymore because the system has been dismantled. But the idea, so an example is that when an individual can hold it together in front of a judge, like, so I say I've got someone who's believes that, you know, aliens have put a chip in his eyebrow and, you know, the minute he gets his hand on a butter knife, he's going to get that thing out. He's going to dig it out. But what he can do for about five to ten minutes is he can hold it together and say, no, I don't believe that anymore. The medications have worked really well. And what I'll be doing is working, saying, well, let me give a chance to talk to him in front of you. And what I do is I keep that interview going for a good 12 to 17 minutes and the center can't hold on an individual like that. He, he, become, he or she becomes untethered. So I'm using that as an example of what I think really would happen with Mary Kay is that, you know, she can ape these behaviors, but she can't be consistent with them. You know, and being consistent would mean that she was addressing distress tolerance and instability internally and using coping skills to keep herself balanced. So if there's no one holding her responsibility responsible for that, then she's got no motivation. You know, this has worked for me before, just being a chameleon, jumping from persona to persona. I'm just going to keep doing that, and I'm going to make it work because this is what I know how to do. And as we wrap up, I guess I'd say this. Like, regardless of whatever tensions we see about gender and the way this case was treated, this is not a situation where Mary Kay Letourneau was ever going to get life. So eventually she's going to be out. She's going to be engaged in treatment. People might be uncomfortable with that reality. People might not like that reality, but it is the reality of our criminal justice system. As two professionals that work in the field, do you believe in this type of treatment? I, I mean, I understand that there are barriers and if people are ready or not, but like, can we say something positive about the desire to try and intervene with this behavior? Or is this something that we're just doomed to repeat forever? That's a really interesting question because when you look at the research, there is not a ton of research out there that supports that treatment is wildly successful with sex offenders. And, well. <laughs> and when, I, when I heard that, when I first got into sex offender work, I thought, what the fuck am I doing here then? Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, I, was, right. I was very deflated. And 
But then I get into the work and you start working with people and you start targeting their exact risk or um, risk factors that you're able to parse out for that individual and their crime and their personality and their situation and track improvements. And it, you are lowering the risk of reoffense as much as is humanly possible if the therapist is working hard and if the client is working hard. And you're right, in a society where they are not just locked up for the rest of their lives, wouldn't you want something and some sort of impact and some sort of treatment rather than nothing? (laughs) So I think that's where I came to sort of my happy place of like, okay, I can live doing this work because I know I'm seeing it um, to where it's not 100%. Not everyone's going to give me their best. Not everyone wants to change. And some people are just flat out lying to me. Um, But there are ones that are making improvements and go on not to offend. So it's it's a tough question. It's a tough thing to wrap your mind around when you think, God, research doesn't really show that treatment's all that effective. And the, when we compare that to people who come into treatment for personality disorders, the, the I mean, obviously there's a lot of differences here, but one of the the important distinctions for me as a clinician is that Treating sex offenders is in order to lower risk and lower the idea that someone, another child will be victimized versus an individual who has not necessarily broken any laws, but what they're doing is engaging in behaviors that are a harm to themselves long right. run. It's, it impacts their ability to have a quality of life or maintain healthy interpersonal relationships. And I'm telling them, hey, the tools in your toolbox are really shitty stop using them, use these tools. These Mm -hmm. tools are better. Well, I don't want to use those tools because I know how to use these tools. So, you know, that's, that's the uphill battle I face when I'm engaged in those treatments. All right, guys. Well, we're so glad we had the chance to talk about this stuff. I could talk to the two of you forever about the psych aspects of all of it. It's a blast. It's fascinating. So thank you, both of you, so much uh, for spending time with us again and for all the information and knowledge you shared with us today. Oh, same. Thank you guys so much. I think, you know, we've been talking so long about pairing up and the festival was the perfect opportunity, but I'm sure both of our audiences will get more of the crossover of our shows in the future. Exactly. I hope so. I hope we'll continue to collaborate. One of the things I said on one of our episodes about listening to you guys, because I just marathoned about 25 (laughs) episodes over a long weekend. And I went through this whole like character arc where I was like, okay, Nick and Jessa are the fucking smartest people I have ever heard in my life. I'm so dumb. I'm the stupidest person. How do I have all these letters after my name? I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. And then I get lulled in after about episode six. I was like, this is the most fascinating work in the world. I could be an attorney. I'm learning a lot. Oh, I'm learning to think like them. And then, like, two episodes later, I'm like, oh, no, I'm still stupid. I, I can never know. do that. I can never do this. There. That's exactly how I feel when I listen to your guys. <laughs> 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 I'm very stupid like you guys. Uh, I'm like, I feel like I could do this. And then I'm like, no, no I couldn't. Nope. I am- <laughs> 
way well, too many opinions that would just be expressed negatively and ruin everything. <laughs> well, this was so much fun. Um, I'm, like I said, I'm sure there's more to come from all four of us in the future. Um, but yeah, this this case of Mary Kay Letourneau is 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 a salacious one. Yeah, so, so whoever's uh, listening on either side from getting off or when we post this under uh, LA Not So Confidential, give the four of us some ideas of cases you'd like us to collaborate on. We'd love to get some great feedback. Great idea. Great idea. Yep. And, and I would just shout out LA Not So Confidential is one of my favorite podcasts. I think that while I've loved virtually all of your episodes, two that really stood out to me were the Columbine retrospective and the way that you handled that conversation for the anniversary and your recent episode on LGBT stuff. Oh, good. Uh, thank you. Good. We, we were, thank you very much. That was a tough one for, for a number of reasons, but thank you for reflecting. That. And if, if folks want a deeper dive on personality disorders, oh, right. we covered that. Um, it's episode nine of our season two. It was during the Jesse Smollett stuff. And uh-huh. we kind of looked at people who fake attacks and personality disorders. So if, if anyone wants to go back into that, it's a much lengthier conversation about that. And I would echo what Jessa said. I thought the Columbine episode was fascinating. That's um, the history of that case is something I've read a lot about and I really enjoyed that episode. And I totally endorse the personality disorder episode. That was fascinating. That, that's a topic that I'm very interested in and your guys' episode was really, really good. Awesome. Thank, Thank you, you so much. All right, All right, guys. Thank you. All right. This is Nick. This is Jezza. And this is Dr. Shiloh and, and Dr. Scott from L.A. Not so. Confidential. Take care, guys. Bye. 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 Hi, I'm Joel. And I'm Phil, and we're the co-host of Florida Men, a true crime comedy podcast. Each week on Florida Men, we bring you stories from the shady side of the Sunshine State, starring America's most prolific criminal, Florida Man. Stories with headlines like, Florida Man arrested while trying to hide legless fugitive girlfriend in plastic bin. Florida Man arrested with a monkey in a diaper clutching his shirt. Florida Man loses fingers, eyebrows, and hearing in, quote, modified fireworks, unquote, mishap. Florida woman shoots her ex-husband in the groin while he tries to take her air conditioner. Florida man carrying live alligator chases people in a convenience store. Florida woman arrested at Walmart then smoked crack in the back of a police car. Florida woman sent 65,000 texts to a Tinder date gone wrong. And Florida woman calls 911 on a possum. You can find Florida men on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found.